Welcome to Autumnus, a podcast about spiritual listening and synodality in the Catholic Church. My name is Lexi de la Ferriere, and I'll be your host today. Jan Novotnik was ordained as a priest in the Archdiocese of Birmingham in 1998. He is currently the Director of Mission and the National Ecumenical Officer at the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. He was a non-bishop member of the October 2023 Synod in Rome. He has also recently completed a PhD at the Angelicum in Rome, where his thesis was on the ecclesiology of the local church at Vatican II and the post-conciliar magisterium. I thought we could start a conversation by thinking about the fact that uh, this podcast is part of a project about listening in a church. And since I started that that project, I've been much more aware of of how I listen and perhaps especially how I fail to listen. That I find it difficult to sit down with people and to listen to differing views. Mm-hmm. And I've also noticed that I'm often in conversations with people and they seem to assume that I just agree uh, with them mm-hmm. on very controversial topics without asking me the question. So I know that you're really invested in ecumenism. You've been invested for several years in the church's synodal journey. So maybe we could just start, could you tell me how has your approach, your understanding, your practice of listening evolved over the past several years? Well, that's a good question to start with. Thanks, Alexei. I think um, what I would say is that in the whole sphere of ecumenism, when I first started uh, being interested in ecumenism, when my bishop asked me to go to study um, ecumenical studies in particular, um, that was very much the theory of ecumenism, the theology of ecumenism, if you like. In the last three and a half, four years uh, since I've been back in London working with the bishops as their national ecumenical officer, what I've noticed really is that most of our ecumenical work, yes, we have to discuss at times some very, very serious issues, and there are things that we disagree on um, theologically, but it's always predicated on good relationships, that we build up good relationships, um, which are based on friendship, that we get to know each other, um, and uh, that is in times of prayer, in times of work, but also in social times as well, we actually learn about each other. And I think as you begin to discover the story of another person, Um, then you listen more carefully to what's going on in their life, not just by what they say, but picking up the signals that are happening in their life. Um, It's probably worth saying that, you know, um, I'm a bit of an extrovert myself. I like to talk perhaps more than listen. And so, you know, the whole synodal process where we're asked to listen to each other um, has really made me stop in my tracks. And to start Um, This conversation by something that happened to me very recently during the Synod process in October, where we particularly honed in on conversations of the spirit, then um, that very, very careful and deliberate listening, where you're with a group of people, but you listen without interjecting. And then when you do interject for the first time, it's about what you've heard the other person say. So you're really listening out for what moves your heart and mind. Um, rather than listening out for how am I going to respond to what they're saying. I think in lots of conversations, we all do it naturally. We're thinking about how we might respond while somebody else is speaking. I think genuine listening, authentic listening, um, and this has come to me very, very recently again, um, is about actually listening um, and not trying to respond before you've heard what the person has said. 
So hopefully that is a good framework to to sort of begin our conversation on, you know, listening, synodality, ecumenism. Yeah, thank you. So you did a switch from, you're talking about listening, perhaps listening is a form of recognizing the other, being mm. a, a, a genuine form of listening. And then you talked about these these spiritual conversations and you mentioned synodality. So maybe that's something we can talk a bit about that relationship. Mm. Pope Francis has often insisted on the importance of being, he talks about listening church. I remember um, yeah, he talks about kind of a, a theology of the ear he talked about. But sometimes I kind of wonder what that means exactly, a listening church. And I wonder what the Holy Father, why the Holy Father places so much emphasis on that. Mm -hmm. How do you understand this idea of the importance of being a listening church? Um, I think uh, for me, and again, you know, like you and like many people listening to this, um, we'll have heard Pope Francis speak about um, the idea that the church has to listen. But but who do we listen to? Who are the voices that the church should be listening to? And some people would critique the Holy Father and say, actually, um, we're not just a listening church, but we're about a proclaiming church. We have a message to proclaim, the message of Jesus Christ. We can't just be about listening. But for me, I think what Pope Francis is trying to say is that we have to have, first of all, and this isn't now talking about normal conversations, this is just about interpreting what Pope Francis means by a listening church, that we have to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to the church and speaking to us as individuals. Where do we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? Well, we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit through our life of prayer, particularly in our sacramental life, in our Catholic understanding, and the sacraments are very, very important to us. And we hear hopefully in our hearts and our minds, the stirring of the Holy Spirit when we celebrate the sacraments, when we pray. But that's always predicated, I think, on our listening to the word of God. Um, and I think that's really, really important that the scriptures um, are not just a text that we read. Yes, we're all very capable of opening our Bibles and, and reading the word of God. But the word of God for us as Catholics is often proclaimed to us in the scriptures during the celebration of the Eucharist. So in the liturgy of the word, we hear that word of God, which is then explained to us, hopefully, by the priest or the deacon in the homily. And I think what Pope Francis is saying is that initial listening, before we listen to each other, and not just the members of the Catholic Church, but beyond the church, what people are saying about the way that the church is, before we can do any of that, we have to really, really listen to the voice of the Lord. And, you know, I think in my own life, I've heard the voice of the Lord, not just in those formal moments of proclamation, but I've heard it reflected back to me um, in, in other people's lives. So I hear other people speaking um, about their own faith or they speak about the experience of their lives. And you think, goodness me, um, I need to do that or I need to think about that in my life. Um, and that comes through the fruit of prayer, through that fruit of listening um, to the voice of the Holy Spirit. But it it comes at us in, in different angles, I suppose. I feel that that's quite a, a reassuring message for probably a lot of people in the church who are maybe a bit worried or a bit skeptical about synodality or listening, to couch that within the context of prayer, the sacramental life of the church, and vertical listening, not just horizontal listening between ourselves. Something that 
I feel that kind of points to is this question of discernment. You know, when we're listening to others, to what extent are we hearing the truth? How do we how do we parse between uh, that which is rich and fruitful and that which we have to set aside? So in a Catholic context, how do we discern in the church and what criteria do we need to use when we're discerning? Okay, well, if I can, Alexa, I'll start with a little example, really, because I think, excuse me, I think um, discernment is always the fruit of prayer. And I think for good discernment, we always need a guide. Um, in Ignatian spirituality, for example, we always need a guide. Um, and Ignatian spirituality talks particularly about moments of consolation or moments where you hear the Lord speak, um, particularly, say, through other people. I remember quite a few years ago, I'd been... I was on a diocesan pilgrimage. I'm a Birmingham priest. I was on a diocesan pilgrimage to Lourdes uh, with members of our diocesan family. Um, and I was thinking about whether or not I should go to World Youth Day. Um, I'd sort of been asked a couple of times, would you accompany our young people? Um, we need extra priests to be on this trip. Would you like to come? And I'd been umming and ahhing about whether I should go. And I'd genuinely been praying about it. And then within the course of one day, three people said to me, including one of the bishops in our diocese, um, have you thought about going to World Youth Day? Now, you might say, some people might say that's a bit of a coincidence. Others might say, actually, if you pray hard about something and you genuinely are trying to discern a way forward, in your conversation, sometimes you get that consolation or that reassurance um, of what the Lord might be asking you to do. Um, I ended up going to the next World Youth Day. It felt right. I thought, you know, I went back to Our Lady and the Grotto in Lourdes um, and prayed before the statue of Our Lady. And I said, well, Lord, through the intercession of our Blessed Lady, you seem to have made your will known to me. Um, now, that's at a very personal level. How does the church discern? Well, it goes back to what I've just said. It has to be rooted. The church can't discern beyond what we've been given in scripture and tradition. So we have to discern with, um, it sounds wrong to say, with what we've got but that we have the deposit of faith. So the church gives us this beautiful deposit of faith, which is based in our scripture, in our tradition. So what God has revealed to us throughout the centuries in the scriptures, which has been developed and understood in the constant teaching and experience of the faith of the church. And so we only discern, can only discern within that framework. And so it has to be rooted in prayer, and it has to be perhaps also rooted in study. Um, now, I'm not suggesting everyone is called to, to discern through prayer and through study, but some people are. And that's the basis of a more global discernment. But in our parish communities, in our ordinary life, all of us are called to discern, what is the Lord saying to me? How am I living out my married life, my priestly vocation, the single life? How am I being faithful to my baptismal calling? So to discern that, we do it in the spirit of prayer, but also looking for that accompaniment. And I think one thing that's come out of the whole synodal process is that we've realized that, yes, we have accompanied each other, most definitely, um, as Christians. But actually, we might need to spend a bit more time learning how to do that, learning how to listen to each other, finding people who've got the skills to repeat back to us what they're hearing us say about our lives. Most spiritual direction I've had doesn't give advice. You know, the spiritual director doesn't give advice sort of saying, this is what I think you should do. 
um, a good spiritual director might say to you, this is what you've just said. Listen again to what you have just said about this part of your prayer life that you find difficult, or you want to grow in charity. This is what you said about your relationship with X, Y, or Z. They repeat back to you, and you hear that back, and you think, oh, that is where I need to change. That's where the discernment begins to happen. So you mentioned a couple times the synodal journey. So synodality, even synod, is a word that's probably new for a lot of us in the church. But you write that the Catholic Church has always been a synodal church. So maybe you could tell us a bit about where you see the roots of the synodal church. Um, I think I, I see the roots right back in the in the very early church. Um, in the Acts of the Apostles, we have the, the relation, the story of the Council of Jerusalem. Um, and in the Council of Jerusalem, we have that decision that needs to be taken about new Christians, um, new Christians who are coming from the Hellenistic, from the Gentile world, rather than from members of the Jewish faith. And this question about whether those entering need to be circumcised or not. Now, this was a question which exercised the early church, and, and they discussed it. And what the Acts of the Apostles tells us about the Council of Jerusalem is that the elders met, um, they discussed it, um, having prayed, um, and they came to the conclusion through their discernment um, that basically those joining the church, um, if they hadn't been circumcised, didn't need to be circumcised. That was not a prerequisite. Um, I'm giving you the potted history now. We Hopefully many people will understand this. Um, and then they sent that message because the church in Jerusalem, which was where the church really was based at this time, um, became the focal point. Um, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But interestingly, um, everyone still wanted to know what Peter, St. Peter, thought. Remember, the Lord had given that commission to Peter to confirm the faith of the apostles and the faith of the church. So they turned to Peter and Peter said, you know, the Holy Spirit and we have decided that this is the case. And then they communicated it to, to the early churches, um, to the other Christian churches there. So what was going on there was an act, some people would say, of collegiality, but it was a synod. It was a walking together to discuss the issues of the day. But it was also collegiality. I mean, synod is the Greek word for the Latin concilium, which means council. So it was a bringing together of the members of the church. Now, it wasn't synodality in the sense that we understand it now, or we're beginning to understand the synodal journey. But what was happening was that the church gathered together to discuss and to discern what the Lord was saying. And we see this throughout the, the, the first few centuries of the church with the ecumenical councils, where they really honed in. You know, the creed that we say at Mass each Sunday is the resume, if you like, of those ecumenical councils. And what's happening there is the fruit of discussions that were happening in the early church to say, how can Mary be the mother of God? How can Jesus be both human and divine? All those things that were grappled with, that is synodality. That is people coming together to pray and discern. So we shouldn't be anxious when we hear the word synodality. You know, the church has been acting in this way since its very beginning. If you think about Jesus, um, when he gathered the apostles together, it was a very synodal experience. What did he do? St. Luke gives us this image 
of Jesus and the apostles and the group, including the women undoubtedly, who walked to Jerusalem. They made the journey to Jerusalem. And Jesus unraveled, if you like, developed with his apostles um, his life, who he was. They accompanied each other on that journey. It's very synodal. Um, so I don't think, you know, when some people say, oh, gosh, you know, synodality is very new. Yes, I think what we're doing at the moment is a development of that. It is something new, undoubtedly. But the foundations have always been there in the life of the church, without doubt. So we have these, these scriptural roots with the Acts of the Apostles, and we have kind of reference to historic ecumenical councils. And I suppose a question that some people will have is that, these seem to be uh, precedents which concern the leaders of the church, concern those who are in apostolic succession, concern the bishops. And increasingly, it seems that synodality somehow is expanding beyond the bishops. And yet there's still a distinction. So could you could you kind of help us to, to make some sense of 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 that expansion, how that expansion is in keeping with that tradition? Yeah, I think um, that that is a very interesting point. And I think that is the point which is, um, I, I don't like the word tension, but it is a tension at the moment. And, and I think it was borne out in people's minds when we all gathered in Rome at the Synod of Bishops, um, the first meeting of the Synod of Bishops in Rome in October. Because as I'm sure our listeners are aware, at that meeting, um, it was basically bishops who were present in the room with the Pope, but alongside the bishops were those who were called non-bishop members. You know, about seven, well, 70 of us were chosen from the different continents um, who'd been the so-called witnesses to the continental experience. And there were a few others who were chosen by the Holy Father who were non-bishops as well. I mean, the first thing that, and it did come out while we were there, that it's interesting being at a meeting where you're designated by what you're not rather than who you are. So, you know, you have the bishops and then you have the non-bishops, which comprised people like me, priests, but there were religious um, deacons, lay women and men. So your question goes to the very heart of that. Is it still a synod of bishops is a question some people have asked if there are people who are not bishops within the room. Um, how do bishops discern amongst themselves when there are others present? And I think that is the extension of synodality that we're experiencing at the moment. It would perhaps be a bit too trite to say we did it in this way because Pope Francis wanted it in that way, which is true. But let's just pare back slightly. Um, in 1965, at the end of the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI um, inaugurated the Synod of Bishops. And he did it because he saw the value of what had happened at the council, the bishops were coming together to discuss theology. Um, and he wanted to extend it by saying, well, could we look at the particular um, challenges, the joys and sorrows for, for the dioceses where bishops can come together to, to talk about what's going on in their local church? Now, he said when he instituted the Synod of Bishops in 65, and this is really interesting for Pope to do this, he institutes something and then he says, but it may need to change as time goes on. Now, it didn't change in the pontificates of Pope John Paul II or Pope Benedict. But what Pope Francis has done, and he wrote about this in Episcopalis 
Comunio in, um, I think it was 2018, when he talked about um, the, the reformation of the Synod of Bishops. And he said at that point that the, the Pope is free to choose because it's a consultative body. Whoever, soever he wants to be at the Synod of Bishops to consult him on the topics that are being discussed. Now, that's what happened in this last synod. You had a whole group um, who were not bishops. Now, did that change the way that the synod of bishops worked? In one sense, yes, because first of all, those of us who are not bishops had to get over the, the fact that we were in a room with lots of bishops. And the bishops themselves had to get used to the fact that it wasn't just them in the room. But what I found was that when we were talking about these synodal topics, for want of a better word, um, there's a great amount of respect. Yeah, it took us a bit of time to realize that we were all coming from different places, different contexts within the church's life. But very soon, I think we realized that we all had a voice. Now, I was there and I was very keenly aware that the bishop still has the charism of discernment within a diocesan family, that he's a successor of the apostles. Um, and what we were doing in Rome didn't take away from that. I think perhaps it gave the bishops a different flavor, a different context, that instead of just talking, say, about the role of women in the church, there were women present who could say to them, this actually is what it's like to be a woman in the church, someone who works in a parish community or uh, a woman theologian. Um, this is what it's like, Excellency, um, to, to, to be in this situation. And I think that gave a different flavor to the discernment. Yes, it was challenging. Yes, it was different. Um, yes, it was a bit jarring at times. But I think by the end of that four-week process, it felt quite natural as well, possibly because we'd had the continental experiences where we'd all been together. And when we started the consultation processes, you know, lay people have been together with their priests and bishops um, to a greater or lesser degree um, from the very beginning. So actually, is there anything to fear? No. Are the bishops losing their charism of discernment? No. Does this help every member of the church um, to, to bring to the table um, a certain understanding of what it means in their own context? Yes. Are we all trying to listen to the Holy Spirit? Yes. Who will discern for the church finally? The Holy Father. So I think it's still um, a synod of bishops, although I know that others might disagree with that and we might need to think about terminology, but actually this is all very experiential. So we're learning by doing. And I think some people find that challenging, if I'm being honest. So one of the questions there might be, so you talk about the, the charism of discernment for the bishops, and traditionally we'll, we'll talk about um, the, um, the sense of the faith within, within the baptized, the sense of fidelium. And I believe that traditionally we would tend to, to, to say that one of the bishops' roles is to collect or to be attentive to the sense of fidelium, but then to... To, con to, to come together collegially with other bishops to, and to be in conversation with, with, with the pontiff in terms of discernment and decision-making. Does this new format, which we is still in the process of coming into being, mm -hmm. does, this fun does this change the relationship between the bishop and the census fidelium or not at all? 
Um, I, I see where you're coming from. And I, and I think that, you know, this is something that perhaps will need further development. You know, I have studied synodality and thought about the different kinds of structures that we might need. Um, personally, um, notwithstanding all that I've just said, you know, I think there could be an opening for the Synod of Bishops have a manifestation where the, the non-bishops are present and an opportunity where the those who are the non-bishops move away from it for a while to allow the bishops to have the discernment with the Holy Father. Um, I'm not sure that's in his own thinking, but that is something that potentially could happen. Um, but it's interesting that you mentioned the census fidelium because, you know, our most recent kind of Teaching on the census fidelium comes in, well, there was the International Theological Commission's document in 2014. Um, but I think I'd like to take us precisely back to Lumen Gentium, the church's document of the Second Vatican Council on the life of the church. And in Lumen Gentium 12, it talks about the census fidelium um, and that the church cannot err, you know, when all of her members agree in matters of, of faith and morals. Um, and you're right, the bishop guards that. Um, and, you know, traditionally what we understand is that, you know, the baptized members of the church um, innately understand the census fidelium as it develops. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about scripture and tradition and the deposit of faith. Um, that's what the census fidelium is guarding. So our synodal discussions, um, you know, cannot take us beyond that. So we might look at the the role of women in the church, we might look at celibacy, you know, we might look at the role of the diaconate, we may look at certain moral issues. But we're not trying to plug these from just out of the air as topics responding to um, the world in which we live. I think, yes, we are coloured somewhat um, as Christians by the world in which we live. But our response and the way that we discuss and discern these has to be rooted um, in that tradition, that deposit of the faith. And yes, there is development in teaching, there is development in doctrine, but we can't go beyond um, what we have been given. Um, and it is the bishop's role and the successor of Peter, but all of the bishops as the successors of the apostles uh, to guard that. Um, and I think actually having that conversation where you broaden it to have a conversation with the lay faithful and with others, I think it sort of deepens that understanding. It doesn't take away from it. It, it sort of changes how it's done. But in essence, Lumen Gentium 12 still stands, you know, and it's about guarding that deposit of faith, but being faithful to our baptismal vocation which unites us to the faith of Christ in the body of Christ, which is the church. So since, since you raise Lumen Gentium, so something that, that comes up there in that uh, apostolic constitution is that on the one side, Lumen Gentium clearly affirms the equality of everyone within the church, but it also clearly upholds a distinction between sacred ministers and the rest of the people of God. So again, I think in this theme, I think for a lot of us, especially in the contemporary age, uh, where there's a strong emphasis on kind of breaking down social barriers on a form of democratic equality, how do we hold those two statements together in, in, the, in the church? On the one side, 
this kind of radical equality, and on the other side, this clear distinction of roles. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a very important point, and again, that is one that comes out in the kind of the synodal structure. I think Lumen Gentium does both. You're right. In chapter three, we have the kind of the hierarchical nature of the church, and in chapter two, um, it talks about the people of God, the whole people of God. Now, what I think we have to understand is, in my understanding, um, you know, is that a hierarchy includes the laity. You know, to have a hierarchy which you just talk about the clergy, um, you know, would be nonsensical because, um, you know, and one of my favorite theologians talks about this, Eve Congar, you know, that the, the heart of the hierarchical nature of the church um, is the lay faithful, the, the, the common priesthood, because the ministerial priesthood and Lumen Gentium 10 in chapter two of Lumen Gentium, um, Lumen Gentium number 10, talks about the difference between the common and the ministerial priesthood. And the ministerial priesthood is drawn from the common priesthood, the common priesthood of all the baptized. So ministers are not exalted in any sense. We, we are drawn, the priests are drawn from among the people for service of the people. And I think if we forget that, then we're in danger of, at times, trying to find this equality. Um, but the church reflects creation, um, and creation has a hierarchy, and the church has a hierarchy. You know, it would be far too flippant to say, as some do, the church isn't democratic. Um, you know, the church is a hierarchy. Um, and I think what, what Lumen Gentium was trying to do, and this is founded back in chapter one, I know we're going through it backwards now, chapter three, chapter two, chapter one, but the, the mystery of the church is founded, you know, and Paul VI spoke about this in that beautiful document that he wrote contemporaneously to the council, Ecclesiam Suum, on the nature of the church, that the church reflects the community of, the communion of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But within the communion of the Trinity, there is a hierarchy. There is, a, you know, the, the precedence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and the church um, reflects that. So, you know, Lumen Gentium is reflecting the hierarchical nature of the church, but also that sense of communion. So what am I saying here? Actually, what a synodal church is trying to draw out, and so by really drawing in the, the common priesthood, is, is, is suggesting that, you know, we all have a role to play. And actually, you know, an Italian theologian I was reading sort of said Vatican II was redressing the balance between a very hierarchical top-down model of the church and trying to involve once again the whole people of God. So I think the movement was to say that the dignity of baptism um, is not just the gateway to all of the sacraments, but baptism gives us a dignity in our relationship with Christ. And whether we're a lay member of the church or we're ordained, all of us share in that dignity. But there are different charisms and different ways in which we are called to serve the church. And I think that's really important um, because that is at the basis of trying to understand when we're talking about the census fidelium, when we're talking about having a consultation. It flows, I think, from the dignity of baptism. So you mentioned Paul VI's encyclical Ecclesium Suam there, and one of uh, the concepts that he he develops there is that of dialogue. 
I think maybe that brings us a bit back both to our, to our question of listening and to our question of different groups, different roles. Could you tell us a bit about what Paula Six was trying to convey through this notion of dialogue in Ecclesiam Suam? I think what I think you know what was happening. You know, when I, I when I was studying ecumenism in Rome, um, I was taught by a German priest, a theologian, um, predominantly about interreligious dialogue, actually, so not ecumenism. But we were talking one day, and um, he said to me, Jan, you know, if you want to understand the dialogical nature of the church, if you want to understand why Vatican II started talking about dialogue with the world um, and the understanding of the church that was being um, cemented around Lumen Gentium. You need to read or reread Pope Paul VI, Ecclesiam Suam. He said, I bet like in, when you were in seminary, you didn't really read it properly. Um, and I, I had to hand on heart say, no, I didn't. So I reread um, Ecclesiam Suam with very different eyes. And what Pope Paul VI is doing, I think, you know, it was written in 1964. It was in that time of the council where they were really struggling about to understand and to write Lumen Gentium about the nature of the church. So Paul VI, in his first encyclical, as it was his first encyclical letter, says, you know, this is what the church and what the church is. And he starts by that, by talking about that Trinitarian understanding, the church as communion, um, and that the church reflects the indwelling and the life of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just as the Trinity is in a dialogue with each other, um, the church is in a dialogue with herself um, through the common and the ministerial priesthood. But the church then also has a dialogue because who is the church? Well, we might traditionally think about baptized Catholics, but both Lumen Gentium says this, and certainly Paul VI speaks about this, that the church extends to all those who are the baptized members of the church. So unfortunately, when we think about the break in the church, and that's why we have ecumenism to pray for church unity, all baptized Christians, albeit not fully part of the Catholic church, share in that visible communion with the church. So he starts to talk about that. And then he talks about people of other faith. And then he talks about the world as a whole. And so he says the church has to enter into a dialogue with herself, um, with other Christians, with members of other faith. And with the whole of humankind, these kind of concentric circles that people talk about in Paul VI's um, understanding of the church. And really what he was doing was he was, I don't want to use the word forcing, but he was asking the church to think about what is the church? And the church is, as Lumen Gentium says in Lumen Gentium 1, it is the sign, the sacrament of salvation for the world. So the church has to be that vehicle that brings Christ, the light of the nations, um, Lumen Gentium, you know, Christ, the light of the nations, to the world, but not just in that moment of proclamation. Yes, that is essential. But also, to go back where we started, to listen to what the world is saying. Um, and we get a glimpse of that, I think, you know, in Gaudium et Spes, in the church in the modern world. But what's happening in, in Ecclesiam Suam is Pope Paul VI is saying we have to enter into a dialogue with the world and we don't need to be frightened about that because our dialogue that we're entering into offers people the person of Jesus Christ. It offers us the communion, the indwelling of the Trinity. Um, and I think what is happening in our synodal kind of structure at the moment 
is that we are realizing the importance of that dialogue. So it's taken us, you know, they say it takes 60, 80, 100 years to implement a council and its teaching. So I think we're in that early stages now, or really beginning to discern what Vatican II was, was saying to the church. And, you know, one thing that I think is important is this dialog dialogical nature. And so, you know, again, I keep saying not to be fearful of this process, because I think people are fearful of this. You know, if you enter into dialogue with someone, there's always the potential that you might be won over by their arguments. Um, um, and I don't think it's about that. It's about listening, listening to those concerns and, and realizing that, you know, not in any pompous or arrogant way, but we have the gift of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his gospel. Um, and that is a gift which we can offer to others, um, particularly when they're struggling or they're challenged. Um, and so I think that's something that Paul VI was really trying to hone in on um, at the time of the council. Just since we're talking about the council, kind of moving forward from the council, it, it seems to me, listening to you and from some other things I've read, and tell me if you disagree with this, that there's this argument that there's a, a natural evolution or a natural development from perhaps uh, an ecclesiology of collegiality coming out of Vatican II to an ecclesiology of communio, really developed by Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, and really kind of uh, really uh, carried when he becomes pontiff as Benedict XVI. And that this isn't in contradiction with, but this is really kind of preparing the ground for synodality under Pope Francis. Do you, do you, would you agree with that? Or is that is that a mischaracterization? Um, yeah, I think um, basically I agree with that. I mean, um, I don't want to bore people on this um, topic. Um, you know, I wrote my doctoral thesis um, on the relationship of the local church, the Petrine ministry, um, from the time of Vatican II. Um, and basically, you know, I read um, all of Joseph Ratzinger's ecclesiology. So, yeah, I think, you know, the ecclesiology of communion, which was really honed in in the Extraordinary Synod um, of Bishops in 1985, where, you know, Pope John Paul II had called this celebration 20 years on um, of the Council and what the council had achieved or tried to, to offer to the church. And what was being honed there was an ecclesiology of communion. And people like Joseph Ratzinger and other theologians then began to grapple um, with what an ecclesiology of communion really is about. And that's drawn out, I think, of you know, what Paul VI was saying in Ecclesiastes, so and we've just been talking about that, Lumen Gentium's teaching in chapter one, and, you know, I think we have these kind of staging points or um, you might want to call them Kairos moments, Kairos moments, you know, where there's a definitive action of the Holy Spirit, where something really happens. So, you know, at, at the Second Vatican Council, it was it defined really in a, in a particularly precise way what collegiality is in a way that Vatican I had been unable to do because it had been interrupted. Um, you know, and Vatican I had concentrated on the, the Petrine ministry. Um, some people would say, you know, it was very monarchical. Um, it did talk about collegiality, but it wasn't expanded on. That development came at the Second Vatican Council. But obviously, conciliar teaching has to develop. It has to be understood. And so this idea of an ecclesiology of communion with Joseph Ratzinger and others, Congar had spoken about this, Walter Casper speaks about it, Jean-Marie Tillard, 
um, lots of people um, are beginning to, to talk about this. So 1985 was a, a definitive point in that understanding of ecclesiology of communion. Now, for my money, I think, you know, there's been a lot of ecclesiological talk, but there wasn't very much development of this thought, really until the times of Pope Francis. So others have paved the way. And Pope Francis, you know, um, and current ecclesiological thought is thinking, well, how do we live this ecclesiology of communion? So we're tentatively trying to understand how to do that. So, yeah, I think in essence, you know, others have paved the way. Um, and Pope Francis has courageously, and I think it is courageously, of this opportunity, um, which instead of just writing about it theologically, he's actually practically saying, I'm going to involve everybody in this. And I think that's why actually some of us are finding it a bit jarring because, you know, the invitation is very real, it's very tangible, it's experiential, it's practical, and it's happening now. Um, and it's not just the subject matter of theologians. This is the whole church doing theology. Um, and that's why it is a bit kind of, oh, gosh, what are we doing? But I think we are in a, this is development. This isn't rupture. This is a hermeneutic of continuity, most definitely. So lurking in the background of all our conversation, I feel, since we've begun, was a theme of challenge, a theme of disagreement, theme of of how do we overcome uh deferring understandings of the church mm. now there's always been conflicts between opposing factions in the church uh insofar as part of the church is a human institution um but i feel that i think a lot of people feel that right now one of the things that the synod on synodality that that process has has revealed at least right now is that it's laid bare some dangerously deep divisions in the church today not that those divisions didn't exist beforehand, but now in some way they're more visible. So this will be my final question, is how do we as Catholics move forward in unity? I think, um, I think you're right, Alexei. I think um, it's, I think that we would be naive if we thought the divisions weren't always there, you know, at the time of the Second Vatican Council. Um, I won't bore people theologically now, but, you know, the reason we have chapter two and chapter three of Lumen Gentium written in the particular way it is, is the fruit of the tensions that were there between the hierarchical understanding of the church and the church as the people of God, the church as communion. Um, so, you know, th those kind of tensions have always been there. And we got that unity at Vatican II um, by getting the document, which is Lumen Gentium. Um, unfortunately, you know, it is hard to see those divisions at the church at times. You know, I can think of being in the Synod Hall in October, and there were people with very divergent opinions who actually were able to speak to each other. So I think the, the first root is always the root of charity, you know, that actually we are human beings, we respect each other, the dignity we have as a human being as a baptized member of the church, we may disagree. Now, obviously, sometimes those disagreements get really difficult, challenging and nasty. But, you know, what I saw in the Synod Hall were people with divergent opinions, but realistically, in the main, being able to talk to each other. And um, what I might draw us to, and I think, and this I hope isn't going off at a tangent, but um, the Holy Father in the, the homily, and Pope Francis in the homily at the end of the Synod, preached um, not so much about the synodal experience, 
but he he picked up on two words, um, which interestingly enough, our own bishops, the bishops of England and Wales, um, have spoken about, which is to adore and to serve. Um, adorare and servire, you know, is how the Pope expressed it. And he talked about the adoration that we give to God, um, you know, and he talked very specifically about adoration of the Blessed Sacrament um, and drawing close to the Lord in the Eucharist. Um, and then he talked about how our prayer and our devotion to the Lord in the Eucharist leads us to service. Now, I hope it's not too naive to suggest this, but the way of overcoming division and to seek unity is to seek unity in the Lord. Where do we truly find that unity but in the body of Christ? And literally in the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, but in the body of Christ, which is given to us in the Eucharist. And the Holy Father was very clear about this. And then he said that this adoration leads to service, service of each other and service of the world in which we live. And it strikes me, and perhaps this is a bit naive because I'm quite an idealistic person as well, but if we really are trying to do the Lord's will, then to go back to where we began, we have to discern what the Lord wants of us. And I can think in my own prayer life, some of my deepest moments of prayer have always been before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and when I've spent time before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, you know, he's changed my heart and it makes me more conscious of the needs of others. So what I'm trying to say is that unity can be brought about. It doesn't mean that we will always agree, but we have to learn how to disagree in a much more compassionate and generous manner. And I think Pope Francis gets at this in the whole of this synodal and listening um, structure, that we have to listen to each other, even if it's difficult to do that. But never forget the focus of what the church is about. This is not about introspection. It's about knowing what the Lord is saying to his church, hearing what he is asking us to do, and then proclaiming it in the mission of the church, which is always about service, service of the word of God, service of each other, service of the world in which we live, to bring about Christ's message. And if we're doing that, then we haven't got time to be arguing with each other all of the time, but we have got time to listen to each other's opinions and learn from each other, because there's nothing worse than being so entrenched in our own way of thinking that we can't hear the voice of the other. And to go back, Alexis, to where we actually started this conversation, you know, how do we listen? Um, well, then we listen by allowing ourselves the possibility to be moved by what someone else has said, rather than just sticking in our entrenched position. And if we're Christians and if we listen to the voice of God, all of us know that we have to move from our sometimes stubborn, sinful state into, into grace-filled situations by really responding to the Lord. So I hope that's not too naive um, or too um, pietistic at the end, but it really is a, a deep desire that I have to, you know, to try and seek that, that unity without discarding that there are challenges and there are divisions. Adoration leads to service, and service will bear the fruit of unity, and listening mm -hmm. should be in the service of that. 
Yeah. Uh, Father Jan Novotnik, thank you very much for such a rich conversation. Uh, I've thank learned you. a lot and uh, I, I look forward to, to continuing another time with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Autumnus, a production of the Listening Practices in Global Catholicism Project. Please subscribe so that you can join us for other episodes available wherever you get your podcasts.